to ensure quality. For the benefit of the consumer, federal inspectors examine and certify each carcass at the packing plant. Basic cuts from a hind quarter of beef are the flank, the sirloin tip, the loin, and the round. From this end of the carcass come stew meat and ground beef, both good American family standby. The chuck, the shank, the brisket, the plate, and the rib. From the plate comes America's favorite, short ribs of beef. And the rib section gives us the highly regarded standing rib roast. In the hands of a good cook, any beef is capable of producing gastronomic miracles. The chuck is a massive piece of meat. Here's another American favorite, lean, juicy round steak, rich in protein and nourishment. For most Americans, a choice steak is a symbol of good living, and rightly so. And father enjoys making like a cook in his own backyard particularly with some premium sirloin like these entrancing pieces of meat, cut specially thick for those aficionados who like their meat rare. Hiya, sport. Nice to see you again, Mr. Gecko. Hey, try the steak tartare. It's off the menu. Lewis will make it for you. Of course, sir. It's raw. It's Welcome to voice print identification. 2001, A Space Policy. This is Wes, and I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared to voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. On TCM a few weeks ago, there was a Stanley Kubrick night. I tweeted something out about it. Uh, they had basically most of the early films leading up to Space Odyssey, concluding with Space Odyssey at, two, at, uh, <laughs> at 0200 hours, <laughs> at 2 o'clock the next morning. And so I think they started with the killing. Maybe they started with Killer's Kiss. But this afternoon, tuning into TCM was perhaps the best month of TCM, where you have Summer Under the Stars and focusing every day on a different uh, character, actor sometimes, but... In this case, major blockbuster movie legend, Sidney Poitier. There was one on earlier called The Bedford Incident from 1965, which I'd never heard of before. But produced, I noticed uh, in the credits, a James B. Harris production. And maybe with Richard Budmark, actually, I think, because it was an independent production. But James B. Harris was Stanley Kubrick's first producer for The Killing and Lolita. And they really learned their craft together on that movie. They cut their teeth together as up-and-coming filmmakers. James, what kind of tasks would they delegate? Um, uh, what would Kubrick delegate to him? So basically, um, he was the producer uh, in terms of um, raising money. He was uh, hiring um, department heads. He was coordinating schedules um i'm sure especially on the killing uh functioning somewhat as as a an, uh, in a in a line producing or overseeing line producing capacity of course he was also in paths of glory as well um 
so there was a lot to do there in terms of coordinating this massive production, which, again, these were independent productions. Um, in the case of Paths of Glory and the Bedford Incident, you have stars with production companies, and Kirk Douglas was certainly a pioneer of actors beginning their own production companies. Bryna Productions, I think his was called, I think named after his mother. After Paths of Glory, uh, he was so impressed with Kubrick that he hired him to come in and take over Spartacus after he, hi after he fired Anthony Mann. Well, that didn't turn out to be such a happy experience at the end of the day for either one of them, but I think it's a classic. I, I personally love Spartacus, even though I think it is definitely much more of a, a Kirk Douglas production than a um, than a, a, a Stanley Kubrick film in parts, but I think there are parts, definitely the parts that were restored by Robert B. Harris and uh, do, 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 what's his name, his partner, in restoring Spartacus. Um, several scenes that had been cut out that I think definitely had Kubrick's stamp on them, but also Dalton Trumbo for sure. The other thing about that was uh, in the credits, I also noticed later on, lo and behold, the editor was John Jimson, who was the first editor that George Lucas fired after he saw the first cut of Star Wars. And then brought in Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu and Marcia, his wife, at the time. Then, lo and behold, next credit up is cinematography Gil Taylor. Well, Gil Taylor was the cinematographer of the first Star Wars. So, interesting that those three were working on this production, which is clearly a British production. And this is Bormwood, England today. Here in this London suburb, space scientists, industrial designers, and conceptual artists from all over the world are gathering at the MGM studios. They've been brought together to contribute their knowledge, their ideas, their visions, to advise and consult in the filming of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. So in the second episode in our Dawn of Man uh, archaeological dig, we're looking into the filming of this sequence. And specifically in the studio, because this scene was actually the last thing filmed after everything else had been shot, uh, which is perhaps a very wise idea. And in many cases, you want to get the hardest material done as quickly as possible, as, as early on in the schedule as possible. Um, rather than saving it to the last minute when you might already risk being perhaps over schedule or over budget for other reasons. This was saved to the very last. They were considering doing this on location. Kubrick even was scouting locations remotely um, the, the way that he liked to do, certainly from that point on, which was to hire photographers to go around to locations and then bring him rolls and rolls of shots of every potential angle, every potential lighting scenario um but uh which is a testament to how difficult it is to shoot on location 
he had to come prepared with a bandolier of film and the Swiss, yeah. and a Swiss Army knife of uh, cinematic tools just in yes. case. Absolutely. Uh, well, yeah. the problem was that uh, even if they were going to shoot it remotely, they were going to have to find somewhere like Spain where he could take a boat because he was based in England and Stanley Cooper didn't fly. You know, Stanley did not like to fly. He got a pilot license once in his life and decided he didn't want to ever, he, he realized what could go wrong. <laughs> and he never flew again. Neither flew himself nor was flown. He would take boats. He took, as I did, I took to Queen Mary, he always took boats places. So he couldn't go to Africa physically. What he did, and this is before the days of cell phones, he had a second unit crew, still crew, they were still photographs. Look very carefully at the background, nothing really is moving, they are still shots. And he had a telephone connection with these guys in Africa. And he had a graph with one, two, three, four, five, six going up the left-hand side of the graph and A, B, C, D, E, F, G going off the top of the graph. And he was on a direct telephone connection with these still photographers and he'd say, uh, Okay, Joe, um, the mountain range should start, you've got it at 3B. Change it so now 4M. So the man would pan it. He said, okay, all right, that's it. And that is how he, um, he got the shots. So what, so, uh, what you have was a, uh, the, the general taking charge by telephone uh, directing the troops in battle, not unlike General Buck Turgidson <laughs> in Doctor Strangelove. So this was this was all shot on the stage at Bournemouth Studios. The backgrounds that they brought back were eight by ten ectochrome slides. So they put this and projected it onto a forty by ninety foot two way mirror. Now you might ask, what's an what's an ectograph? Oh, I'm so, thank you. Yes, uh, so ectochrome, ectochrome was ectochrome was a type of film that was created for slides. Um, okay. There. Uh, so I don't know if you ever heard specifically the, for still images, were they the ones that had like the hard plastic outer, or were they like more like celluloid flexible film? Yeah. So the the film itself is distinctive for being able to create very high-resolution photographs that hold up to extreme magnification uh, where traditional Kodachrome slide film was a little bit too slow perhaps what I'm talking about is is uh, speed in terms of the amount of light that could be exposed mm. on that piece of mm. film so like a 200 speed film is for really bright outdoor stuff because it can't let in a whole lot of light in a short period of time. Sheesh. Whereas 800 and 1,000 speed film you, you use for like sports photography close-ups and things oh, in motion or dark lit scenario because that film is specifically created to, um, to quickly take in capture whatever photons or expose, you can oh. expose it in low light scenarios. It's oh. all flexible traditional film, but that what makes it special because of the resolution of that film it's more expensive, but it holds up to slides. And so because Ectochrome was available in a wide variety of sizes, these were eight by 10, which is, you know, so a bit a large format, 
but again you're projecting it onto a 40 foot by 90 foot screen so it better be and there's so many <laughs> factors to, to that i feel like uh it would just be frustrating more for like a production crew than the cinematographer <laughs> there's so much that has to go into everything has to be pre-planned and studied over every shot and i think that's one of the the breakthroughs of this is because of the fighting the light degradation as fighting possible light loss as well as as well as um, as well as loss of resolution and of course risking uh, uh, shadows or harsh lines between the subjects and the background exposed or the background projected normally you would do this as a rear projection um, but rear projection you see a lot in old Hollywood where basically you're standing in front of a background which is um, like you're standing in front of a wall which is actually a transparent screen and behind that is a projector with projecting the image so you're behind but because the projector there's because you're not between the projector and the screen you're not casting a shadow the light is all coming to you if you're properly lit in front of it that is so similar to the scene on the Orion is that a rear projection though a am, is, I, am I on the wrong no you're right that is a literally what it is because he's basically a projector sitting two seats in front of him with a so, hole carved in the middle of it yeah. now what I'm trying to, to arc is mm -hmm. now that you've explained that I understand what you're trying to say about that scene okay cool because so I was, I was I'm, afraid I was I'm trying no no not at all not at all. I just, I just didn't, didn't quite picture it in my mind mm -hmm. at the time. But yeah, no. But that's a hundred percent. Well, yes. So, so if you can imagine that, like blown up a hundred times, you're projecting it on a forty foot by ninety foot screen, and you're standing in front of the screen with the projector behind you. You're losing resolution not only from the throw distance, but because you're on the other side of the screen. So the other side of the screen has more. Uh, has a higher resolution than the one you're it may be it may seem nominal but when you're filming at 70 millimeter and you're trying to create a, a full a depth of field an immersive depth of field and a screen that you can also light with mm. that's not enough you're losing you're light and you're losing focus much light as possible so, and, and if you think about anyone who's watched any of the Disney galleries or has seen anything about ILM and the volume and everything that's being done on those stages of LED curved um, 8K projection walls, this is essentially a, 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 version of, um, a version of that at a stage where instead they didn't have, when they didn't have that luxury, they had 1,500 individual light bulbs instead in the ceiling, color-coded and, and, and uh, different colors. and different Soldered to very intricate relays that allowed them to light at very specific times. Yes. And at the, at, uh, it would get up to over 100 degrees in those stages. So you feel really sorry for the actors who were in those ape costumes. They even had... Uh, people standing by to give them air <laughs> like shoot uh, compressed air 
up blowing to their faces mm. and fans to cool them off immediately. Wonderful. But uh, rather than... So they thought, well, let's flip it around. Well, you can't shoot in front of the screen without cause, without creating a shadow. But you can from the side. And now we get to the age of the magicians. The 19-teens and 20s vaudeville Broadway magic superstars who achieved incredible things with mirrors by seemingly making gigantic objects and animals vanish in midair on stage because they were using a mirror and lights. Uh, you, you like magic, don't I you? I love it, and I went hear you rave about him. I uh, did not watch the... Uh, he's from Kentucky, and he's been making a lot of noise in magic circles. This is a first appearance on national television. Would you welcome, please, Lance Burton. Lance? <laughs> use that technology in this case by projecting that 8 by 10 original ectochrome slide onto 40 feet by 90 feet of two-way mirror glass. But since it's two-way, you can put that behind and reflect the surface through and bounce off onto the other side, leaving you 90 degrees to work with. So instead, what they have was a projector and then there's a gigantic mirror wall with tons of studio lights and things around the set. And the mirror is at an angle so that actors are in front of the reflection of mm. the projection mm. and therefore not casting shadows. Awesome. So you could have the projector 45, 90 degrees off stage, but be shooting at an angle where you're getting that background at the highest resolution and the most light possible with the actors getting really close without having any quality degradation or any wow. seam. You can see a few That's little so cool. seams if you look in the sand, but it's it's almost literally seamless. So the transparency screen that the mirror projected on was also cut up into little tiny pieces like uh, like a kaleidoscope and then paste it back together. So there were various shapes that could mask any artifacting from a still image. So any amount of grain or hair or any kind of focal variations or warping could be diffused by these varying shapes and sizes of the reflective material onto the screen because there wasn't a linear pattern. You know, sometimes when you're watching something projected on a a home screen, or even sometimes at the movie theater. Um, if you're close enough, you can see the grid in the projection screen itself. Mm -hmm. So this was their way of getting rid of that problem by changing the textures at a micro level so that there was no one way for the eye to focus in on a pattern or a texture on the, on the screen. Gotcha. The camera operators actually wore surgical masks when getting anywhere close to the mirror to help keep it clean. Uh, the sets were also built on a rotating platform, which meant that you don't have to move the screen or the projector setup once you get it set. You just <laughs> move the set in front of your, um, in front of your background setup. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. I would like to have one of those just for my office so I can... <laughs> Lazy Susan full of apes. Ah, uh, be so neat. 
There are all kinds of different images you could cast. Oof. Oh, absolutely. I'd buy it. Um, Instead of wallpaper? Mm. <laughs> absolutely. Just have a, a projection. I was a mime, and I was asked to come out to talk to Stanley. Oh. My whole mime training comes from the American Mime Theater, where mime is an extension of the acting process. All movement begins with the acting process, with characters, etc. So I came out to meet Stanley, and he said, you talk pretty good talk, but you've never done, you know, don't know anything you've ever done. So I said, well, I'll show you if you have a half an hour of black leotard, three towels. And uh, I went and I showed him what I could do. And he hired me on the spot. And that began a process. But the, what I was looking for always was people I could, I could get to act a little bit. Because I understood that the movement wasn't the solution. The, the solution was to motivate the movement. So for the, finding the apes themselves, they brought in about 200 mime actors to test out for who could wear these ape costumes. And you had to be, basically, you ever seen any background footage of Bellagio on set of Alien, Bellagio, Bodea, the original guy in the alien suit? Yes. He was an art uh, student. He, he was, was like seven, like seven feet foot tall. tall. Yeah. Really, really <laughs> slender. And Absolutely. You know, and without yeah. the without the mask, he didn't even need the elongated head mask. Like he was terrifying yeah. just in the suit by himself. He was huge. Totally. <laughs> totally. And um and Doug Jones. Uh, but he's a Dougie. Uh, Dougie is is built just perfectly for that. He's taller than most of the other actors for this job certainly but uh you know he could do it he can do anything and also not only a wonderful actor but a, a great guy in person as well they stuart freeborn of course uh, the man the myth the legend designer of yoda chewbacca mm -hmm. so many other great creatures designed the apes and originally they were going to have our buddy that we spoke about last week Neanderthals, but when they mocked up the Neanderthals, something just didn't quite click. For one thing, you were going to have much more um, anatomically <laughs> similar creatures to humans walking around naked, hairy and naked, but uh, if you're going to be scientifically accurate, uh, it was going to be too much, certainly for a film which outrageously, now it seems, ended up being a, a G, which was, that was an intention during this new rating system is to make a G so that everyone could go in and they didn't want it to be an adult film or to get a, an R rating for, <laughs> for ape nudity or for, for Neanderthal nudity. The other issue there too was Neanderthals were a lot less hairy than Australopiths, which because they didn't have as much hair, that meant not as much of a costume, and that would have meant much more of gluing hair onto appliances rather than full suits. And when you peel those things off, some things happen, such as pulling off hair in your nether regions. Uh, when you're wearing this outfit, and there's only so many layers of the dermis on those areas yes. too. It's a it's a very thin uh, dermal area. So they were going to have to expose, basically put a put put hairy appliances onto humans, and then just leave them naked, but with a, the appliances 
strategically applied. So they made Stuart Freeborn made castings of um, various crotches of uh, the crew and created little plastic pubic wigs, basically, known as crotch merkins among the crew, after President Merkin Muffley, played by Peter Sellers in Doctor Strangelove. Hello. Uh, hello, Di hello, Dimitri. Listen, I, I can't hear too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Oh, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then... Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. <laughs> okay, so Freeborn, so Stuart Freeborn has an interesting quote about, about this. He says, The problem was that the characters look completely neutered. Okay, this is on page 233 of Michael Benson's tome, The Fantastic Space Odyssey. Buy it if you don't have it. Do it now. But the problem was that the characters looked completely neutered. The essence of the picture was that aliens came down on Earth to make sure that these creatures would not die off because of famine and whatnot. The aliens knew that these were the only creatures on the planet that might eventually become like themselves. Obviously, these creatures had to procreate to continue the species, but it was pretty clear that this wasn't going to happen with the creatures we came up with. So the whole thing started again. The only solution was to go back another million years or so to ape men rather than man-apes. That way they could be completely covered with hair. That way they could be, that way they could be covered entirely with hair. So we move to australopiths. So, so what he created was um, these incredibly tight-fitting suits, but very bulky with foam and um, appliances to fill out the character of the animals more accurately. The the trick was also to 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 make it, not only to make the suit look primate-like and not totally human, but to make the actors look that way as well, which is why they hired mime actors, coached and encouraged to go to the zoo and observe the primates there. They, they gave, well, specifically, Dan Rector. When Stanley Kubrick hired Dan Rector to play Moonwatcher, the main character of the Dawn of Man segment, he gave him a 60-millimeter camera and sent him out to the zoo and told him to go observe the apes. Stanley had given me a small Beaulieu camera, an 8mm camera. Um, and so I would come to the zoo alone every day to sort of ponder and what, and, and Guy became a friend of mine and I would sit in front of his cage and talk to him about it and whatnot. I built the choreography from different animals, different parts of the body at different speeds. We would all do a ballet class. Then Dan would set us these mind exercises, stretch exercises, and all the interacting. And then it went from there. And as, as he said earlier, we then were brought up to the zoo to watch things, to study the apes, and then to get our own interpretation of it. I needed to understand who these man apes were. It's like the uh, Seven Dwarfs, Sleepy. You know, they have to be clear characters. I could do that with Moonwatcher, that wasn't a problem. Uh, but I, I was very aware that the other apes had to be 
you had to know who they were. This was a, a sort of a nervous guy, but it was very big, but he was nervous all the time, and, and sometimes he got upset, and you know. So that would be a character, you know, or a guy that it was always watching out because people always just treated him badly, and you know. So Stanley and I were very aware of that. that we created very specific characters. The other problem with the suit itself was proportions. There were some things you could fake and some things you can't. So if anyone's ever seen what was considered for a long time to be the worst movie ever made, and some still do, Manos, Hands of Fate, the character of Torgo the Goat Man is not a convincing representation of a goat man, or of a man with goat legs. His sheepskin chaps were less than sufficient to portray a leg. I am Torgo. I take care of the place while the master is away. But the child, I'm not sure the master would approve. Or the dog, the master doesn't like children. We only want to know where Valley Lodge is. Which way do we go? There is no place like that around here. Well, Torgo, which way is out of here? There is no way out of here. So what Stuart Freeborn did was he got in touch with a manufacturer of artificial limbs for veterans and others. And they ended up making ape hands and extended forearms where the actors could put their own hands into the sleeve of this, tie it into the rest of the suit, and then articulate ape fingers. Um, cool. Uh, art and then articulate the ape fingers with an extension so that uh, in order to elongate uh, in order to elongate their arms. Yeah. Did it work like this weird grab like novelty grabber items where you can just pull it yeah. back? Yeah. Pull it back and it a... <clears throat> makes a makes a fist. That's a brilliant it's exactly that type of technology. They had like rings and you could put your fingers oh, totally. and pull them back and they yeah. would grab. Love those. Toy grabbers. What was it like for you to work with Kubrick as a director? Oh, it, Stanley, from my perspective, Stanley was a wonderful director. I, I was very lucky because um, I, you know, when I first came on, uh, Stanley really didn't know how he was going to make the opening. We had a script. Uh, the script doesn't read too much like what we actually shot. And uh, he had had a lot of problems with it. So he gave me uh, a free reign. And here, I'm a young kid. I'm 27 years old. I'm cocky. Uh, you know, I'm full of myself. Uh, and he let me, he trusted me and he let me go. And this, this wonderful creativity that uh, we had. We would meet every day and, we'd, and he, he was interested in my ideas. We'd try things out, we did that. And I noticed that later with, uh, with other, other, uh, other people on the movie, is that he respected the creativity of others. And for an artist, that's an absolutely wonderful position to be in, especially when you're working with a genius. The actor that played one ear ended up getting bursitis. <laughs> when they, when Moonwatcher finally uh, uses his weapon to kill the beast, 
he called up, Kubert called up Stuart Freeborn and he said, uh, I'll uh, get some meat made up for you. And Kubert says, no, no, I want real meat. And Stuart Freeborn said, well, you can't have real meat because that eats away at the foam rubber and destroys the masks. He said, no, no, I want real meat. So, first of all, it made Stuart Freeborn have to design a whole new face contraption where it, you could articulate the bottom half of the jaw. But the big problem was that the actors had to tuck in and chow down on some raw meat. It's raw, Melissa! It's raw, come on! Not only were they in makeup for hours and then subjected to 100 degree plus heat and then blasted with cold air for 10 seconds and then put back... Well, well no, there actually was a, a legal requirement, like a union requirement that said, no, 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 you can't have them in there for more than a certain number of minutes at a time. <laughs> then they were sweating in the masks and then there's this raw meat juice and then their faces are swelling because it's gonna you know inflame them it's gonna make them sick if they swallow and everything so, which meant that they ended up having to fumigate it with ozone gas wow. <laughs> to clean it wow tom hanks once said that dan rector deserved an oscar for the performance of moon watcher and i agree with that not only because of his performance but his endurance and nobody said it was easy to make a movie but no one has ever said it was ever easy to make a movie for Stanley Kubrick. Well, we weren't outdoors. Yes. We were on a very big stage. Oh, not outdoors. Yeah, and the, uh, it was one shot at the very end we were outdoors with. Stanley wanted to get clouds behind me, so we did one close-up out there. But the, the, it was, we had this immense front projection system, which was driven by an arc lamp, uh, projecting onto an 80-foot screen. To get the color temperature correctly, the background and the foreground, there were arrays of hundreds of lights that all came down to a, a, a switch system so you could switch off groups of lights. The temperatures were well in excess of 110, 115 degrees Fahrenheit. The set itself was dusty because it was a desert and it was very realistic. And basically we had nurses on each side, we had a doctor, the, uh, we had uh, stagehands that had tubes of compressed air and hoses, and, the, and we couldn't shoot for longer than a minute, at which in the minute Stanley shouted, cut, they would run out to us, try to get the mask open or put a tube in our mouth so we could breathe, push hoses down inside our costume and flush them out with compressed air. If anybody was feeling woozy, they took them off and worked on them. And we did this down, the scene where I killed one ear, and we had all of us on the set, and that was Richard Woods who plays it says it was 32 takes. That one master shot. Uh, so you can imagine what it was like. It was, uh, it was pretty, and you had to, meanwhile, you have to act, and then you have to do this move, you have to get the movement right, you get, and, and you've got all of the group, and everybody's gotta be synchronized and do it right under these conditions. I just couldn't imagine sweating, probably halfway hallucinating inside of this mass, raw meat juice dripping, <laughs> just absolutely 
getting into because you said them a bunch of them were mimes right yeah so they were probably just like living in that role absolutely the meat juice being strength yes oh my god and and then getting uh e coli or is it salmonella Ooh, salmonella. salmonella yeah well probably both they may have got both from that Oof. Yeah, no reports of anyone getting uh, sick from it, but well, thankfully they they didn't leave it out. Yeah, they didn't leave it out in the hot sun for too long. Although they were in the hot sun and their masks sweating, <clears throat> they they were they were in the hot lights for too long. They didn't leave the meat out in the hot lights for too long. Got to keep your meat ice cold. That was the detail I was very curious about because you know you'd mentioned the sweltering temperatures and our our poor crew just absolutely schwitzing <clears throat> I don't know yeah were they were, so let me just sidebar this for a second oh, yeah. like, did the masks fit directly onto their faces to the point where like if they bit into it with their fake jaws, like it would hit them in the face, like get into their mouths, or like. Yes, um, but there was a space. Unfortunately, it turns out because it was the space where the juice could run down into your chin and between the mask and your chin. Do 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 do. Stinks in here. Smells like meat. Rotten meat. Kids, why would you bring that rotten meat in here of all places? Kids, you gotta keep your meat ice cold. Okay. The problem, too, here is I don't know how cold they kept the meat that they ate. Uh, hopefully, it didn't get too rank or too bad. Again, I don't think anybody um, got sick. But they definitely had some hot meat with the dead horse. They tranquilized the taper. When there's the whole incident with the taper, the you know it, it's it's just asleep it's just resting but but when it but then they brought in a dead horse and then painted it to be a zebra and that under the hot lights um that really started to get rank the these yeah that's one where the the, the crew definitely did begin to complain so you can imagine I could, what a beautiful i couldn't <laughs> imagine i could not imagine to work in <laughs> Can't wait to go to work in the morning. Get that fresh rotten meat smell. Another reason to save this for the very end of the schedule. <laughs> so flash forward to 1968 Academy Awards, and there's two big monkey movies up for nomination for Best Makeup. This wasn't anything that had really been considered up until now, but... It just so happens that another seminal sci-fi classic was also released that year, which just so happened to have primates. Can't help thinking that somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. The words are Charlton Heston's. Get out a last signal to Earth and we've landed! Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. Franklin J. Schaffner's original Planet of the Apes, written by Rod Serling from the book by Pierre Boulay. The makeup was done by John Chambers, a legend in Hollywood 
for so many effects that he's done over the years. But this series was perhaps his crowning achievement, um, particularly that first film. Great makeup effects on the entire cast and, and a variety of simian designs. Is a classic revolutionary design, and he in his own way inspired so many makeup artists. And he also, turns out, was a, uh, he uh, worked for the CIA. And that was kind of a, a rumor that was whispered about, in, you know, in the later years of his life, but never acknowledged until after he passed. And then Ben Affleck ended up making it fully, fully public to the world with the movie Argo, where he is played by John Goodman and was, in fact, involved, as released CIA documents now reveal, in the escape of the hostages in Iran in 1979. So, very, very good movie, very well done. Uh, John Goodman does a very interesting job in actually portraying John Chambers, as I've seen footage of him and have heard other people say. And also, Peter Jackson owns one of his little CIA kits that uh, he would send out to operatives overseas, with you know, whole full sets of makeups, prosthetics, and instructions on how to change your appearance into different facial structures. Really fascinating stuff. Um, there's a video up of it on YouTube with Adam Savage taking a look at it with Peter Jackson. Um, so we come to the awards ceremony, and for best makeup, we have 2001 and Planet of the Apes, both nominated. And who wins? Planet of the Apes. Well, Stuart Freeborn was not best pleased about this. Freeborn contended that people assumed that the apes in 2001 were real. Whereas no one who's ever watched Planet of the Apes, as wonderful as it is, has ever mistaken Roddy McDowell with a monkey head on for anything but Roddy McDowell with a monkey head on. Whereas in the making of 2001, one of the other, one of the other testaments to how much they pursued realism was getting baby chimpanzees, the scenes where mothers were, uh, were protecting and cradling their young, so if the baby chimpanzees were content to think of these mime actors as mama, then surely the Academy membership was also fooled, along with a lot of audiences. Although I'm pretty sure that membership consisted of other makeup artists, because I'm, I'm not sure that that was a, a category that the general membership could or still does vote on. I don't think so. I think that uh, I think that's definitely a, a vote for and by your peers. The fact that they had tiny little chimpanzees there too. That's why people were just like, yeah, those are all those are all chips. Like what the hell? From Clavia Space. This is Brad. And I'm Wes. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.